You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan. Welcome to Southeast Asia Watch. It's been close to three years now since the military coup in Myanmar that took place in February 2021. A lot has happened since then. Immediately after the coup, millions took to the streets in a peaceful civil disobedience movement to call for the restoration of democracy. But when the military decided to respond by force, brutally assaulting and even killing protesters, civilians took up arms and formed armed resistance groups. So what does the future of Myanmar look like? Joining me on the show today is Tinza Shunleyi. She's a pro-democracy activist from Myanmar. She's also the advocacy coordinator with Grassroots Coalition, ACDD, which is the Action Committee for Democracy Development. Welcome to the show, Tinza. Thank you for having me today. It's been three years, um, or very close to three years now, since the coup took place in February 2021. Where are we today? Could you give us a sense of the escalation in conflict and surges in violence across various states and regions in Myanmar? Since 2021 coup attempt in Myanmar, I, we still feel like it's still a coup attempt because that's the main uh, feeling we have every day because of a strong resistance on the ground and also not just inside, but also there is a, a strong support from the people from different democratic countries around the region, around the around the world against a military um, attempt to rule the country. So it's still an attempt and it's not yet successful. And I must say after 1000 days, um, um, and the resistance and the revolution, um, the Honda is um, struggling so much, like never before um, like this in the past, like decades and decades of their their history of ruling the country, that this is the hardest time for the military because they are losing grounds on the, on the you know, in Myanmar, in different parts of the regions. And also their soldiers are also fleeing, like deserting, defecting um, police and soldiers. And also um, the resistance forces keep going on. And this this even impressed and also um, made me feel hopeful for a new nation. So I'm, I must say, Myanmar currently is a nation in the making, that we are going forward for a new nation with a new political system. I really like how you phrased your sentence there, that this isn't a a successful coup attempt, so to speak, because of the power of the resistance and, and the resilience of the um, communities in Myanmar, that, that this is still an attempt um, at the coup, um, which the junta has not successfully carried out yet. Um, just to understand um, a little bit better what has been going on um, over the past three years, um, how many people have the military junta killed um, and dis- and how many people have been displaced since February 2021? In the attempt to coup um, the country, um, they've been using a widespread and systematic terror campaign happening in the whole country. They're using all their weaponries, including fighter jets, and they conduct airstrikes almost every day in different parts of the country, especially targeting ethnic and religious minorities, including Rohingyas. And um, they have been arresting um, civilians, protesters, activists, young people, farmers, workers, women. They have been raping and torturing and harassing people in the detention center. And they've been um, 
beheading the revolutionary uh, forces members as well in the conflict area. So the rise of um, conflict-related sexual violence is there, and the number um, as as part of the AAPP Assistant Association for Political Prisoner, they have released um, um, daily data of like how many people got killed every day or uh, arrested. So as far their data, as of um, 2nd January, the junta has killed um, 4,275 people hmm. since the coup and 25,000 being arrested and 19,000 still being detained. And they are all uh, resistance forces members, politicians, um, and different um, protesters. So, and also based on the recent data, uh, two millions, nearly two million people have already been displaced and internally. And there is a um, increased influx of refugees to a neighboring country, including India and Thailand. How are local communities um, coping with all of this? Um, you, you talk about, you know, the, the severity of the situation on the ground. Um, you know, close to two, uh, two million plus people have already been displaced. Many thousands of people have died. Um, what is the day-to-day life on the ground right now? Myanmar is particularly a poor country. And we have, um, you know, more than half of the populations are grassroots people, especially farmers. And we are agricultural country. Right. So um, there is a big warning about famine famine in 2024 because um, the economic crisis is, um, is so... Um, um, intense right now in the country, mainly because the junta it has no capacity and they have no legitimacy, they have no resources, they have no um, support from the people themselves. Like people inside the country are sanctioning the military products, for example. So people themselves are staying, refraining, using their products. So militaries, um, they own like a business empire in the whole country. You know, they own hospital, they own different products, including the famous um, Myanmar beer, you know, enterprises. So all sort of business business that they have um, now, people are sanctioning them. But at the same time, local community, they know that they are living with the enemy. So they have to deal with this every day. So, But they still struggle to live and survive amid all these intense conflicts. And um, I must say that especially the local civil society are remain intact. Uh, intact on the ground. They are staying with the people of Myanmar. And for example, my organization, ACDD, I'm mm-hmm. the only staff outside the outside Myanmar, uh, in, 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 in border of Thailand. And the rest of my groups are all inside, on the ground with the people. So um, I must say, um, they have gone through this kind of extreme situation in the past too. So like my organization quite trained to live amid all the extreme security threats and situation, economic crisis, because that's never, that's not, that's nothing new for me. My people are living under um, blackout of um, electric and blackout of internet access, you know, because in the past we have um, continued crime. Even in the past 10 years, Myanmar have a continued genocide. Myanmar had a continued war crime. So mm-hmm. people have kind of expected that they could be really worst. So I must say they are now normalizing the resistance um, in their daily life. They are trying to resist every day in their daily life. Do you get a sense of what exactly the military's plan or goal is? Because um, people are resisting, you'd say the military is unpopular, there is no legitimacy for the military among the people. Um, 
You so the the level of civil disobedience and and political instability surely can't be good for the economy. Um, like you say, the military owns many businesses. Um, the state of the country right now surely can't be good for the businesses owned by the military leaders themselves. So, do you get a sense of what exactly their end game is? In principle, I must say the military. They when they stage a coup, um, they said um, it's because of the electoral result. They say that electoral result was not fair, um, so they want to review and you know review the result, and they like to um, punish. And they are acting like a guardian of the democracy, and they felt like they are the judge of uh, of the election, something like this. So, right. um, so you know the consequences are. Of course, right now is so severe, and I must say, it's the decision to revolt against the Honda. You know, the the the, the military. I, w- I would say they are one of the strongest military in Southeast Asia as well. Like they have all their, um, you know. So, but still, that's the main decision by the people that they like to revolt against the military, and um, that's why we are already on the way, halfway through, of forming a new nation with a new political framework. So for now, um, the country itself is um, the politically, economically struggling, but at the same time, people and the different forces are also, um, you know, wide aware that if we can t- uh, rid of, get rid of the military and their institution, not just them, but also their ideologies, then there is a new future await for us. A new future, we, we must sacrifice for a new future. And that's what people are fighting with. Before we dive a little bit deeper to understand what that new future could look like, I want to just understand um, the junta a little bit more. Um, You talk about how unpopular the junta is right now. And even if you look at for the longest time, um, the junta was very unpopular among pro-democracy activists, for example. But we also know that for the longest time, the uh, military junta didn't receive sizable support, especially from Buddhist nationalists, from um, the ultra-religious community, from the religious community at large, including um, Buddhist monks, for example. Um, uh, how popular is the junta among, um, let's say, the religious community today, among um, Buddhist nationalists today? Junta is still being supported by the Buddhist nationalists. And um, also they have their own support groups of their own family members and their military members and soldiers and who have a um, strong opinions against the NLD, National League for Democracy, or or the activists and protesters. And they just frame people like us and people who are um, fighting in the revolution like uh, Western supported. So it's, it's so, um, I would say, they've been using these narrative against the uh, pro-democracy forces since a long, long time ago. They use a, a big propaganda against um, Aung San Suu Kyi as a mm-hmm. Western puppet in the past too. And it's interesting that that these kind of narrative, these kind of um, fear card, you know, they may basically use fear uh, to instill their ideologies and as well. And it's, it's been followed by other different nationalist ideas and uh, hegemonic and, you know, um, also patriarchy ideas. So this revolution is, I would say, um, is about fighting these top pillars that are being supporting the junta as well. So it's a daily struggle. It's not just about um, 
UN struggle. It's not just about political struggle or diplomatic struggle. It's about ideological struggle that we have to tackle. What are they fearful of, including the military members? So for now, I'm working with so many defectors and um, I talk to them. I try to listen. And the same goes to the other different uh, members of the movement that we try to lend. What are the main ideological pillars that are still building the junta and their ideologies? And uh, we realize, yes, these nationalist idea, they are all their main supporter. And uh, we have to fight with this. But when we fight the ideology, we can use weapons. Well, we have to convince them. We have to persuade them. We have to also destroy the fear that they have. They are worried of, um, you know, they are worried of uh, losing their territory, losing the country into different pieces. Like I also uh, remind myself, oh, this is a very own um, institution of the post-colonial era. Like, you know, the military itself was formed um, against the colonial idea. And they are also now a part of the colony, you know, and they can't like free themselves out of this loop. So, yeah, we need to, first, we need to understand what they are fearful, what are they trying to do? And I think in, in terms of democracy and federalism, uh, military also is saying, I, we are supporting federalism. We are supporting democracy. I think it's also about the war crimes that they have committed in the past. We need justice. And without that, it will keep repeating the same thing and using the cultural impunity. So. Um, the revolution uh, and the movement is now talking about justice and accountability in the country for all the ethnic minority. We started talking about transition and justice in a way to try to understand them, also to persuade them to be um, doing the same thing, you know, uh, doing um, doing the right thing for the country. Tinsa, how has the past three years um, impacted the Rohingya community? Because they haven't just suffered over the past three years since the you know the ongoing coup by the military. In fact, the Rohingya community have been oppressed. They have been um, faced with ethnic cleansing um, even before the coup, even during um, the, the time where Aung San Suu Kyi herself was in power. We've had Rohingyas um, facing displacement, ethnic cleansing. Their houses have been burned down. Entire villages burned down. Uh, millions of them seek refuge in various other countries, including including Malaysia. How has the past three years impacted the Rohingya community? Rohingya community, I would say they have a really difficult time, you know, being largely neglected, Mm. you know, especially uh, in the past three years, I must say. Because in Myanmar now, the, the war crimes you know, spread out the whole nation. So Myanmar became a headlines. So before Rohingya were the headlines, right? But now the revolution, also the whole country situation just override. Oh, Rohingya are not just um, the only community that are being oppressed. Like the rest of the other different community are also now oppressed. So this kind of narrative kind of overshadowed the plight of the Rohingya. But Mm -hmm. um, that's what we are worried the most as an activist for human rights that we we feel bad about the Rohingya community, that their issues are not you know, it's not like no longer a bit bit headlines anymore. And and then genocide stay ongoing, that it is like their struggles so bad right now inside the country, especially when they try trying to flee the country. Um, they are being killed, they're being executed, persecuted when they fled to 
even to the neighboring country like Thailand, they are arrested, let alone like they get to the, you know, other different nations like Malaysia, Indonesia. And recently in Indonesia, in, in camps, right, the students and some of the local community are, are uh, like protesting against them. I, I would say uh, after the 2021 I feel a bit hopeful because uh, some of the young people, um, you know, stood up for the Rohingya and the, the people mindset uh, on the Rohingya has now changed. Uh, I don't know like how far this will get, but um, many people apologize like and started apologizing to the Rohingya community, to the ethnic minority community for their ignorance, for their silence in the Rohingya genocide time in 2017. So that is a good sign. And the NUG itself now, they are also supporting the Rohingya and their, their cause. So that is a, uh, that is a good sign for the um, inclusive future that we are looking for. But we must work hard to eventually um, address their issue. We shouldn't forget about them, you know, in whatever opportunity that we have in any different speaking events. On the show with me today is Tinza Shun Lei, pro-democracy activist from Myanmar. We will continue this discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Tinza Shunlei Yi. She's a pro-democracy activist from Myanmar and we're talking about the ongoing revolution in Myanmar against the military junta. This conversation will also be available on podcast, so do subscribe to us. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, Tinza, how do you envision a free and liberated Myanmar? When, when we say a free and liberated Myanmar, what does that look like to you? The end game, that's also the main question that we are being, we've been thinking over the past three years. What will be the end game for the military? And, um, and that's why um, we, we think of um, the strategy to eventually uh, bring about a real change inside the country. It's not about revenge killing or revenge resistance, you know, mm-hmm. like because the the junta is killing our friends, killing our family. That's why we like to kill you back. It's not, it's more than that. It's a revolution. So um, we have to get to the point where we eventually bring about the change of political system. And we have decided that we want federal democratic nation. Right. So that means uh, the past political system that we had in the past 10 years that we we call it um, transition towards democracy is no longer working. The past uh, 2008 constitution, it was mainly drafted by the military and we play along with this and the international community supported the 2008 constitution. We had a, a parliament, different elections, but then we, did, we also had an ongoing civil war inside the country. And we even had a genocide, you know, amid mm-hmm. all these transitions. So we have to think through, thoroughly, like, thoroughly, like, what was wrong since the very beginning. And now we have to realize that that the 2008 constitution was not the answer to the political crisis in the country. So we need a new political system. Well, that was not drafted by the military. That was That should be drafted by the people. People of different you know, different ethnicity, different oppressed communities. So that's um, 
um, that's a liberated Myanmar. That's how it will look like a new political system where, uh, with a new constitution calling for federal democracy that guarantees human rights and inclusivity, participatory, all democratic and human rights values should be upheld in that constitution. And that will be for free and liberated Myanmar. But at the same time, it's not just about political system. It's about justice as well. Justice and accountability is also our biggest demand. We are looking for justice. We want criminals to be persecuted. We want criminals to be held accountable. And so we must have a um, transition adjusted mechanism um, inside country uh, under the new constitution and also uh, in the wall mechanism, just a mechanism should be working faster than ever right now. So that's how we envision a free and liberated Myanmar, independent and liberated human rights based Myanmar. I think this is a very important point that you stress that it's not just about freedom but also about justice and accountability. So you used the word revolution a few times already, and it reminded me um, of something you said. I think it was the first or second time I interviewed you. And you said this is no longer an anti-coup protest. It's a revolution. It's an uprising. Um, and that citizens of Myanmar want a new constitution. They want Myanmar to be a proper democracy. Now, what has the progress been like on that front? How has the dynamics of the resistance movement, the dynamics of the revolution evolved since 2021? I must say, honestly, there is a big dynamic inside mm. the resistance movement as well. That um, uh, Because we are now trying to unite men ourselves right. because the winter... Honda is trying to rule the country. And so we must be united and we must come together. We must put out uh, unifying messages toward the international community, including our neighboring country. But we are now coming together only for three years. Right. And the, the issues that we are tackling are for the past decades and decades long issues, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about, um, there is a lot of dynamics among ourselves, including for the um, constitutions, like what, what, what types of federalism that we want, for example. That, that's the discussion that we never had. And um, there is a big issue about, oh, transition adjusting. How will we do it? How mm -hmm. will we... Um, so, you know, where we also include the, the the period in the past, like the genocide time, right? I mean, 2017, right. Like, where we also cover the period. Like, there is a, a lot of discussions that we have to make. We need a lot of dialogue among ourselves because in the in within these three years, I must say we have, this is the first time ever in our history that um, we had a dialogue among ourselves without, mm -hmm. milita without military. So... In the past, there is always a military yeah, present in our dialogue and trying to overshadow our discussions, right. trying to like, guide our discussions. And military is always there looking at us, like saying, oh, you shouldn't say this, you shouldn't do this. They are the ones who is always the, like, how to say, game maker. And we are just merely their players. But now that scenarios change. Um, we are having discussion, open uh, dialogue and then ourselves without the military present. And that's 
Um, that is so valuable. And uh, amid all these dynamic and between mistrust, distrust between different ethnicity, the you know the uh, majority ethnicity and minority ethnicity, we have our own issues. Even mm -hmm. our own, our own different coalition, we have our own issues too. So amid all this, we are having the first ever like free discussion among us, and that's what I think would take us to where we are supposed to be. So that's kind of the progress that we have. We have a continued discussion among us to build trust and to also repair the mistakes, talking about remedies, right? And talking like uh, apologizing and also um, understanding um, each other. So through this, we're going to get there to our angle. Could you give me a sense of the various groups that have come together to resist the junta? When you say a, a revolution is underway and the resistance against the junta is growing stronger, is there a sense of who's leading the revolution? Um, is it a sort of socialist-led um, revolution, for example? Is it a liberal democratic-led type of revolution? Is it a, a sort of nationalist approach? I think that's what you just said also um, show... Uh, what sort of dynamic that we have, mm -hmm. uh, even in the anti-Hunta movement, you know, that uh, we have, of course, the far left groups, we have um, lefty groups, we have um, liberal groups. Uh, we also have a nationalist group, you know, against the Hunta, and they are all like resisting the Hunta for their own reason. And they all equally reject the Hunta. Mm -hmm. They all equally reject the military rules. Um, despite all the differences they have, political differences they have. Um, also, for example, um, there are groups that don't want to accept Aung San Suu Kyi as the national leaders. And there are groups that stay Siha as the national leader. Mm. And there are groups who like to be in the middle. <laughs> we will use her figure, we will use her figure to uh, mobilize the people's support. But we may not use it when we talk to the U.S. government, you know, or something like this. Right. So, this is like very good example of explaining uh, the dynamic between ourselves. Yeah. So, so there are there are different groups, but um, I must say, and I was talking to different international government, like because they ask, you are also very divided among yourself in the resistance movement, and how will you do? How will you do to unify yourself? You know, that's the main question that I got asked. But first, we are looking for a federated, like liberated nations. We're mm -hmm. not looking just to become only one. We are fighting to become ourselves. So the ethnic. Uh, revolutionary groups, they like to be themselves. And mm -hmm. the Burmese nations, they like to be themselves. And Korean nation, they like to be themselves. And just we just have to allow people to be themselves first before they come together to be a federal union. That's the main point. We're not looking to become only one nation. We like to become, um, you know, acknowledge our own differences first. So I must say, um, we already, I mean, the different resistance forces already put out their unified message that they don't like military Honda. And that's enough that I never heard this kind of stronger voice in the past. This is the strongest ever that so different um, groups like farmers, workers, uh, women groups and, you know, different ethnic nations, uh, even Rohingya they themselves came up saying, yeah, no longer military. And so this is like a broad based revolution and already put out a clear message that they are against the Honda. 
the UN has highlighted that that the junta has been you know using uh, you know widespread indiscriminate air attacks you know to suppress the opposing voices how has these tactics affected the ability of the anti junta groups and the ethnic armed forces to hold on to the territories um what is the situation now do you get a sense that um the military junta is gaining grounds in terms of controlling territories or are they facing significant defeat territory by territory the junta has been using a aerial bombardment even way before the coup i remember our civil society group came together to release a statement on the current state because 4000 people fled then uh fled to Thailand right. because of the air strike even on like uh, 2020 December like we even like say name it oh December is the air strike season because mm. it's after a rainy season the Honda keep using air strike so now they keep using more and more like even now they're increase using the air strike even in the rainy season so in the past 9 months they have used more than 500 uh, air strikes right against different uh, people so the area bombardment has been a key challenge the people of Myanmar especially from the resistance forces are facing even though they may claim the township by township you know in their on ground battles they can resist the um, area bombardment they just send out different air strike helicopters and they just like you know do it in discriminate attack over the idb camps over the hospital schools and so yeah it's so heartbreaking that the school children like um you know have to run even in the rainy season they have to go into the ditches that they have um to you know avoid the air strike and all these ditches were filled with water mm-hmm. even in the rainy season that happened i was so heartbroken um so i think the only challenge that they find is the air strikes and the junta keep using air strike because they can't control ground anymore so that was signaling that junta now they are, they have to use the last bullet right, right. last bullet mean the air strike that's the only their advance and um many soldiers named police now defending and deserting because of the increased military uh, pressure on the ground um and they have they feel ashamed because um the resistance forces that they are fighting with are like the students and the farmers and the worker that they had never hurt against show in the past 3 year but they just pick up gun to defend themselves and they feel ashamed of it um and now they are deserting and now we are recorded we have recorded like 14000 soldiers and police have defected over the past 3 years and um even in the recent um operation night like, uh, 1027 operation has um caused more than 500 soldiers to surrender to the resistance forces so these are the um challenges the junta is facing and also the challenge the air strike is the only challenge i must say that our resistance forces are facing the guerrilla fighter are still there amid all these intense um you know uh intense or crackdown on these guerrilla fighters but um slowly they are there and i must say i feel also worry oh uh what we going to do how we will rehabilitate these for these soldiers after the revolutions over and everything um but at the same time I'm reminded once we have these uh resistance forces they will be there for for like so many years like look at KNU KIE like Korean National Union they are resistant with mark 75 years mm-hmm. like so so that means the resistance forces have persisted 
amid all these oppressions, amid all the crackdown. Um, so if they can resist, if they can persist, like tail to seven decades, the current new forces will, will be there forever, even if we like it or not, even if the Hunza like it or not, even international like it or not, they will be there. Um, yeah, they will be holding their own principle and they will be looking for their own demands, yeah. What are your thoughts on the response by the international community over the past three years, particularly ASEAN? Is ASEAN doing enough? They are cowardice. I, I, I would say I'm so surprised how these international government can be cowardice. Um, and that's shameful because um, even the people in Myanmar, inside country, they have no power, like no power of weapons, no power of like, um, you know, like um, decision making in the international arena, but they stay resist, they stay sanctioned, they stay boycott the military product, and they stay give up their life to fight for what they believe is their future should look like, you know. So why these international government, including ASEANs, with a lot of power, with a lot of influence, do like something impactful? They are now paper tiger, and that is they are losing their own integrity, you know, especially among the young people. ASEAN is just a joke among the young people. And that is that is also very sad because how come these international government become really hypocritical, right, of mm-hmm. what they have said? Not just ASEAN, but also the world's leader. Look at all the crimes the Honda has been committing in the past and past and decades, and they don't you know, they don't do it now. What they are doing, just reality action. Oh, Hunters kill like 300 people? Okay, let's sanction this and that. That's it. What about proactive action to defend the democracy? In Myanmar, in uh, worldwide, you know, what are the proactive action that they can take? But they're giving a lot of excuses. They are even like using a red herring, you know, um, policy saying, oh, what about your unity first? Like, how come you will seek for the unity in Myanmar, like when we are sending out the most strongest, the strongest like like demand against the junta, they keep asking, like, are you united yet? Are you united yet? Like, are we supposed to be united like like in the US? Or like, like you know, there is always a dynamic. And dynamic, political dynamics, we can sort it out when we have a strong demand, when we have a strong goal, we have determined our angle and we, we have already stated that we don't want Honda as our ruler. I don't think anything else could be stronger and loud, louder than this, you know. So I, I'm not like really impressed with what the international community is doing, especially our neighboring country, India, China and Thailand. So what should the international community do? What what kind of role should the international community be playing so that, you know, Myanmar can take, um, you know, significant steps towards achieving that vision that you painted earlier, a free and liberated, um, you know, federal um, democracy. People might say, please support us, don't support the other, you know. Mm. But I would say, stand on your own principle and do as you said. That's the only thing I hope from the international leaders. Do as you preach. Don't be hypocritical. And that's all I want for not just for Myanmar, but also for the generation of your own country and different, you know, different communities around the whole. I mean, the only 
I think the challenge that we are facing right now as in Asia or in declining democracy around the whole world is because the world's leaders are not upholding their own words, mm. not upholding their own promises, not upholding their own principle. That's why. So I wouldn't say please support me or support my cause or support my country. I would say act as you preach and also stand on your own principle. Like if you believe in human rights, do as you said. And also for the democratic principle as well, like it's, um, it's the war is now a global village. Everything is connected. Like, for example, what's happening in Myanmar now impacting to the region. Um, the re refugee crisis is now like it's regional issue. The Rohingya crisis is global issue right now. So we must uh, admit to the point that whatever happening in each of our country impact to us, meaning we have to be proactively are uh, defending each of our countries, especially from the dictatorial authoritarian regimes. So for that, we need to act accordingly, like as far as our principle. For if we believe in democracy, like for example, India. India, they are the biggest democracy, but they are actively supporting Honda. What a shame that is, right? They may say a lot of different excuses why they are not supporting the Myanmar pro-democracy movement, but if you are not hypocritical, that you would do what is best to do, best to for the people, not just for Myanmar, but also for the Indian population as well. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Tinza Shunlei, pro-democracy activist from Myanmar. This conversation will also be available on podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to us on Spotify, do give us a follow and drop us a review. I would really, really appreciate it. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.